Where Dreams Come From is a podcast featuring successful people from different walks of life around the world. People who have pursued their dreams to arrive at a station in life. I'm your host, Sanjeev Chatterjee. When I think about the outstanding career of photographer Maggie Steber, the words resilience, persistence, and faith in the world come to mind. Having found photography quite by chance, Steber has followed her passion from her first journalism job in Galveston, Texas, step by step, to the pinnacles of photojournalism. Her work has been published in the New York Times, Newsweek, National Geographic. The list is long. She has been honored by World Press Photo and is a Guggenheim Fellow. I spoke to Maggie at her home in Miami about her dream of becoming a better photographer every day. Maggie Steeper, thank you so much for joining Where Dreams Come From. I just wanted to ask you if you would start from where you were born and where you were brought up and what that life was like. Well, Sanjeev, thank you so much for inviting me to talk to you about these things. Basically, I grew up in Austin, Texas, uh, and I was raised by my mother, who was a scientist, a parasitologist, who studies the diseases caused by parasites. And I started school early because in Austin, there was a test that you could take with the school district that would measure your level of intelligence. <laughs> I'm not sure I could pass it today, but when I was a little girl, I took it. And so they wanted to start me early. And so I started school when I was five and I went to this very progressive public school, Pease School, that was in the middle of Austin. Children would come from all quarters and that created this sort of multicultural experience uh, for me and all of the students who went there. Can you just compare that experience as compared to the rest of America, for example? Austin uh, is a very, I like to say it's the liberal oasis of Texas, <laughs> which is an otherwise rather conservative state. Uh, and even then it was, but uh, it was a very progressive city and uh, this was the only school like this that existed in in the city. What was very exciting about it was that even people who came from very poor or lower economic circumstances uh, had an opportunity to come to a school that was extremely progressive and a public school at that, so there was no paying for it. I think I was quite lucky to go there. At the time when I was growing up, I had a very bad lisp. And so I had private lessons with a speech teacher three times a week, and she taught me how to talk again. I, well, I have a little hiss now, but it's not so bad. Uh, but it was that kind of school, that it would do whatever it could uh, to move the children forward and create opportunities for them uh, in a myriad of ways. When did you start even thinking about photography? Oh, I didn't start thinking about photography until I was in university. And actually, I had some really, along the way, I had some remarkable teachers. And uh, in the eighth grade, I had a social studies teacher, Mr. Shank. He's the one who first started calling me Maggie. Uh, and when he would give us tests, he would play classical music. And if you could name the title of the symphony or the opera, he would give you extra credit. Well, my mother raised me on opera, classical music, and so I was always getting extra credit. So he really liked me very much. I was so enamored with uh, French. I started out in college 
to be a French major, and I was going to be a high school French teacher in Texas. Happily, I was working my way through school, and I was not doing very well when I got to this one French course where you had to read three medieval French novels a week. But I was working 20 to 30 hours a week to put myself through school and going to school full time, and I made a D in my major. But at the same time, I had a roommate who was going to be a, a journalism teacher, and she had to take a photo course, and so she would use me as her model to show running and action and freezing action and portraiture and things like that. And she would come home with these prints. And one day I went with her to the dark room, just the magic of the dark room. That was it. I changed my major immediately to journalism. I would take courses in the journalism department, take writing courses, editing courses and things like that. And I also took classes in the art department. So in the art department, the most extraordinary man was teaching, and that was Russell Lee. Russell Lee was one of the Farm Security Administration photographers to photograph the United States as it was going through this depression. Russ's work was so honest. One of the things he taught all of us was to respect the people who allow us to come into their lives. And that was really big for him. But I also loved how he taught because, you know, we're all trying to make these sort of artistic photographs. And I'm sure they were just terrible, but he would always laugh and because he wanted to encourage us to try these things, you know? And then he retired and Gary Winogrand came to teach there. He was a street photographer and a very famous one, but he also did advertising. But his work was in the Museum of Modern Art in New York. He was a, a really famous photographer and he was very gruff. But I learned from him how to really look at photographs and this came in handy later when I became a picture editor, but we would hang our pictures up on the wall and he would make us look at them. We would sit down and he would say, okay, what is the best picture up there? And of course, everybody went for the well-composed kind of eye candy picture. And he would tell us all that we were full of shit. And he would choose the most obscure photograph on the wall. And he would talk about it for 20 or 30 minutes. And from that, I really learned to spend time with pictures, not only how they were composed, but to go further and really think about what they meant. I guess there were signals along the way about what you're supposed to do and what you're probably not supposed to do. French has been extremely helpful and useful to me in my career, and I love speaking it. But it was really in university that I started taking pictures. Before the magic of the dark room, you said that there were some signs perhaps, now looking back, what, what comes before? I'd have to really go back further and say that it was my mother who encouraged me to dream because she and my father divorced when I was six months old. And so I really grew up without a father. And she was always worried that I would um, feel lesser then. And so she would always remind me to hold my head up high and square my shoulders and be proud of who I was. And that was really really important. My first job out of school was on a little paper in Galveston, Texas, and it was for a reporter photographer. That story, how I got that job, is kind of funny. It's a great lesson, and especially for women. So I heard there was this opening, and I had never been to Galveston, but I got in my car, and I drove down there, 
And I walked into this paper and that, you know, little papers you can just walk into. And I walk into the managing editor's office and I told him that I had heard there was an opening and that I'd like to apply for it. And he said, well, you know, we already have two male candidates for that and we're not really hiring a woman for that job because it's going to be at nighttime and you have to go to these little towns around Galveston and do the police reports. And, you know, so we're not really going to hire a woman for that. I said, well, um, what time do you come to work in the mornings? And he looked at me in a strange way and he said, nine o'clock. And I said, I'll see you in the morning. And I got up and left. And I went straight down to the proverbial coffee shop in downtown, which is small, Galveston, where everybody goes, the same people every morning. So I started talking to people and asking them, what is going on here that the paper hasn't reported on? What's the big story? What are you all talking about? And it turned out that the University of Texas had a medical school in Galveston. And there was a very beautiful old surgical theater. It was an oval building made out of wood with wooden slats. And it was kind of like theater in the round. And so the students would watch was taking place down in the middle of the floor. The university wanted to tear it down to build a parking lot. And the townsfolk were up in arms about it because it was part of their history. And a lot of the students and the doctors who taught there were very upset. And so I did these man in the street interviews. I went and interviewed some of the professors and the students. And then I snuck into the building and I processed the film and I stayed up all night making prints and I wrote a story. And at nine o'clock the next morning, I went to the paper. And when the managing editor saw me coming, he said, Miss, Really, you, you need to go. And I said, well, before I go, I just want to show you what I did yesterday. Here's a story I did for your paper. And he started reading the story, and he looked at the pictures, and he read the story again, and he looked at the pictures again, and then he looked up at me, and he said, you've got the job. That was a very important lesson to me for the rest of my life, is that if there's not one way to do something, there's always going to be another way, and your job is to figure it out, but also not to let people crush you or crush your dreams. So I worked there for a year and I did all kinds of things and it was wonderful. And then I moved to New York happily for me again. I had a friend who worked for Associated Press and he said, you know, we don't have any women photo editors and the AP is really under pressure. So I went and I applied. They had me come back and they said, well, we really like you. You know, this is a tough job and you'll see a lot of arguing and fighting and uh, there's a moment-by-moment moment deadline constantly, so there's a lot of stress and everything. We've been watching you and talking to you, and we think you would do well here, but we don't have an opening. And I said, well, okay, thank you. I'll just stay in touch. And I thought, well, that was a great write-off. But again, this is where I got this from my mother, is to have faith that something will happen. And so in the meantime, <laughs> I was working in a furniture store. <laughs> and also, this is kind of racy, but I like the story. I did nude modeling for art classes. Happily, I only had to do that for two or three months. Somebody quit and I got the job and I loved it. And I just loved looking at the pictures. It was very exciting. I was seeing things from all over the world because everything would come to New York. I did very well there. Uh, and they finally made me a supervisor. And that was like being the captain of a starship. But little by little, they were steering me toward management. And that was not what I wanted to do. I did not want to be a manager. I want to have my feet on the ground and my hands in the soil. I suggested one day that they send somebody to do a story in Africa about this long distance runner who was winning every race 
he won. His name was Philbert Bailly, and he was from Tanzania. He could not go anywhere without winning a race. It was amazing. And they kind of patted me on the back and said, yes, Maggie, that's a nice idea. But they didn't do it. So I thought, okay, this is a good story. I know it is. I'm going to go do it. So I went on my vacation, and for 10 days I stayed in Tanzania. And Philbert Bailly was adorable. Uh, I would photograph him training, and he was also in the military, so I got to photograph him during that. I went back, I wrote the story, and the AP said, oh, this is really great, and they wanted to run it. And I said, no, I'm not giving you this story. And I ended up selling that story 12 different times in the United States alone, including a full page in the Sunday sports section of the New York Times. I fell in love with Africa, and I started to think, you know, maybe I could do this, maybe I could freelance. And I decided that that's what I would do, is that I would quit AP and I would go and try to freelance and cover the war. I, that's what I did for two years. I covered the last two years of this guerrilla war. And I met uh, somebody I fell in love with and we almost married, an Australian cameraman. But in the end, we weren't ready. ready. But we've stayed friends low these many years. After the war, I came back to New York and I had this portfolio of war pictures, that, a war that Americans were not at all interested in. So I had to start again from scratch. I started doing portrait assignments with a lot of business magazines, but I also started looking for funny little stories, little feature stories. And little by little, things got much better. I started going to Cuba quite a bit to learn, to teach myself long form storytelling. And that led me to a really great opportunity with Newsweek and so on and on. You've talked really in some detail about the importance of resilience. Resilience, yes. Along the way, you've referred to, but I don't think you've expanded on yet, what role mentors may have. Along the way, I ran into people who were extremely supportive. They saw in me somebody who was really, really trying hard to become better. When I was covering the war in Africa, I hooked up with a French photo agency, and they had an agent in New York City, Jocelyn Binsikin. And she had worked at Time Magazine. She had worked all over the place. She was highly regarded in the photo business in New York. And she wasn't too keen about working with me at first. She liked men photographers. But when she saw how hard I was working, and oh, I didn't mind working on speculation, so she took me under her wing. And she was probably my first mentor and the person who encouraged me. She was a very strict disciplinarian too. Somebody else who has figured large just as a great friend uh, was Jim Colton. Jim and I worked at AP at the same time. We were AP brats. And then he went on to work for Newsweek magazine. So when I was going to Cuba on my own time and my own dime, which I did for several years, I would come back and I would have all this film that I needed to process, which was not cheap. And so Jimmy would process it for me and he would look at it and he would do an edit and he would say, well, I think if you had tried this or this, this might have been better. Jimmy believed in me and Newsweek believed in me. Uh, I became a contract photographer for them for four years and they were so sweet to me. And it was Jimmy who moved me along in my career. All of the people at Newsweek and they had a lot of faith. You know, looking back, it, it, it's not clear to me yet what you were chasing. Was it money, fame? In my career, I haven't really thought about being famous. 
because once you shoot to the top, the pressure is enormous. Everybody is saying, what's next? What's next? What are you working on now? Uh, they expect even more and more. And the pressure is extraordinary. And a lot of these people were not ready for it. And they would crash and burn. Uh, so I wasn't really so interested in that. I just wanted to be a photographer. I wanted to get to go places and I wanted to tell people stories. I didn't have a family except for my mother. And I decided I can make my own family from the people that I meet. I think I can have a very adventurous life with the people who let me tell their stories. I wanted to be somebody who practiced humility and who recognized that it's such a privilege that I was lucky. I also had to rely on the people who would let me photograph them and tell their stories. And that the only way to do that was to do research and to learn as much as I could about a place or the culture or what I was doing by reading the history, reading contemporary things, uh, talking to people, trying to learn as much as I could, and then going in like a baby who didn't know anything. I would be the blank page for them uh, and on which they could write their story. Along the way, I also decided I wanted to help other photographers wind this very complicated and competitive um, metier or career. And now it's even harder because everybody is a photographer and um, everybody wants to be a photographer at a time when there are certainly fewer venues. I mean, newspapers are dropping like flies. Magazines have much smaller budgets. I remember my second story for Geographic was on Miami, where I didn't live. It was a six-month assignment. Can you imagine? And now, uh, if you get an assignment from the Geographic, you're lucky to get six weeks. So I decided I would try to help other people. Uh, a lot of younger people, and I try to help them edit their work, and I look at their work, and I brainstorm with them, and I suggest publications that they might uh, look at for getting their work published. I'm sort of surprised uh, because a lot of younger people, especially photographers, don't really understand the idea and the benefit of research, but also not being familiar with their market. So sometimes when I teach workshops, I talk about the marketplace. And they look at me like, what is that? And I ask them a question, and that is, well, who do you want to work for? What magazines besides National Geographic, because everybody wants to work for that, do you want to work for? And they say, well, oh, we didn't think about it. And I said, well, then go to Barnes & Noble and look at the magazine racks, because there are all kinds of magazines, and that's your market, and you have to be familiar. And don't think that you're just going to go to the top right away. Like, be willing to do business portraiture. If you look at magazines, if that's who you want to work for, everybody needs portraits. So develop a portrait style, even if that's not what you ultimately want to do, <clears throat> because this is a step-by-step -step process. Before we conclude, it would be just not complete without talking about Haiti, and we haven't done that yet. Uh, in what ways did you get involved in Haiti? I think in, to The Guardian, you had said one time, the photograph that you called, mm, Hunger is stronger. When, oh, when hunger overcomes fear. fear. Yeah. When I came back from Africa and I was working in the States uh, and the French picture agency I worked for called me and said, Maggie, uh, 
we want you to go to Haiti to do a story on poverty, and you're going to love Haiti because it's very African. And I really did sorely miss Africa. So I said, okay. It was 1980, and uh, I went down there on my own dime. I would go out every day and photograph, and I had to be careful because it was the period of the Duvalier regime, and Papa Doc Duvalier had formed this secret police, the Tonto Makut, and the Makut were fierce. They were the law. Uh, they could shoot you on the street, and nothing would happen. So I had to be mindful of that when I was photographing because I didn't want to get into trouble, but also I didn't want Haitians to get into trouble. But while I was there, Baby Doc, who was the son of Francois Duvalier, announced his uh, engagement to a woman, and her name was Michelle Bennett. Then I covered the wedding. But in 1985, in December, I read this little short piece in the New York Times that there were food riots going on in Haiti. And uh, having been there and knowing how dangerous it was for people to demonstrate at all, people were starving to death. So I went, and I went straight up to the north where most of the demonstrations were going on in Cape Haitian, Cap Haitien. And one day, at the end of a long day of demonstrations, people just went wild. And they ran over to this food depot, this big building, warehouse, where all of this food aid was kept, the food that was never given to them. It was always sold on the black market. They covered that building like ants on a piece of candy. And there was this complete chaos. And people broke into the depot, and they were stealing bags of rice and tins of oil, and they were fighting each other, and they were carrying them away. And it was crazy. It was wild. And so I was in the middle of it, photographing, photographing, and these were the days of film, so you don't know what you're getting. I wasn't even paying attention to whether I was in danger or not because it was so chaos. And, and then I went back to the Capitol. I shipped my film. A couple of days later, my agent called me and said, Maggie, you have a picture that is amazing. She said, I can't even describe it to you, but uh, US News is going to run it, uh, two pages. So I kept working because then all of the riots trickled down to the Capitol and froze the Capitol, uh, Port-au-Prince. And a few days later, Jean-Claude Duvalier and his dragon lady wife, Michelle Bennett, fled the country and went to, into exile in Paris. Suddenly, for the first time in 30 years, people could come out into the streets, they could demonstrate, they could sing, they could dance. An interim government was formed to uh, organize elections. The first democratic elections in 30 years. And so it was a really, really remarkable time. I'm getting chills just from talking about it. But when I went back to New York uh, and I saw this picture, I couldn't believe it. So it's a picture of a, of a little boy trying to steal a box of food from underneath a shuttered door at this food depot. On the left is a soldier coming in with a rubber stick, a baton so fast that the baton is curved. And then from the other side, a soldier is coming in with a rifle. This is a picture about Haiti. It was about the powers that be and about the poverty and the resilience of people to overcome that. And so I called it When Hunger Overcomes Fear. And the Haitians just, you know, taught me so many lessons. Uh, whenever I would get discouraged, I would think about them because in the worst situations, they get up every day and they do it again. They are so resilient. Let me ask you a question about 
the whole trajectory that we've talked about, that do you have a clear sense of what you came into photography thinking what photography would be? When I first started taking pictures, I just loved taking pictures. I thought it was magical. I thought if I can make a living as a newspaper photographer, or maybe, I don't know, you know, how I would use photography, but I would have been really happy and content with that. But at the same time, if I would work hard uh, and gamble on myself, that I could see that I was moving forward. The big things were uh, like when Newsweek gave me some great assignments, but then uh, had me be one of their contract photographers for four years. And then certainly everything that happened in Haiti, because I started winning awards. Just all of the kind of big markers once I started to get to work for the Geographic. And I received grants along the way. And then I had opportunities to teach. That was sort of a, a very uh, wonderful thing that made me think that maybe I was a better photographer than I gave myself credit for, but that I still could be better. And that's always been my goal, is to be better and better. Yeah, I, I have a life I never thought I would have. And I'm yes, I'm living the dream. I'm living the dream. And it's a really nice dream because my riches are in the people that I meet. And I've had a very rich life. Maggie Steber, thank you so much. Thank you so much, too, Sanjeev.